Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. If you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles, you can find that on page 857. And this morning we're going to be reading verses 1 through 21. So Luke 2, 1 through 21. Now we all have our Christmas traditions. Uh, Some of those may have looked a little bit different this year uh, with today being Christmas. But I hope you've been able to at least enjoy those this weekend. Uh, maybe you're going to enjoy them tomorrow or even this afternoon. Um, I'm we have our own that we're planning on doing, and I hope you're able to do that yourselves. Um, this passage is one of mine. Uh, it is one of our family's Christmas traditions, and I'm really excited to get to share this with you this morning. Uh, because this is normally something that takes place in the privacy of our own house. Uh, and this is, I'm really excited to actually get into this passage to unpack it with you and to think about what makes this day so glorious. Uh, for years, my grandfather has read this passage to our family, typically on Christmas Eve before the chaos of the morning starts. And while he has faithfully persisted in this, I don't think it's something I really appreciated until uh, I was really a high schooler. My grandfather is not a pastor, but he is a faithful believer, and I am so thankful for the way each year he has taken intentional effort, which is difficult considering how many people are crammed in and spread across the space to gather everyone together on that night and to, to really pull everyone together to the heart of Christmas to remind us what we're celebrating and why we're celebrating. I'm thankful for that, and that's really what I'm really just... I remember the different. He would always have a little devotional he had written to go along with it. And I appreciated that so much. But this morning, I'm really excited to get into that with you um, to really culminate what we've been doing over the past few weeks. Uh, we have been, uh, for the month of December, we have really been t- trying to take a deeper look into God's promise of an offspring who he said he would send to deliver us from our sin, to restore us to a right relationship with him. So we've looked at Genesis 3, we've looked at Isaiah 9, and this morning we're looking at Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 21 captures the details of the moment when God delivered on that promise telling us about the first Christmas and the birth of Jesus. Now, I'm assuming most of you, if not all of you, um, are very familiar with this text. It's a passage really that needs no introduction. So my purpose this morning is not to shock you with new revelations about Christmas, but really just to remind you of the true glory of what Christmas is as we dive into the details of Jesus' birth. Uh, my hope is that as we unwrap the greatest gift that, we've, that has ever been given, that God will use this time to really to grow your awe and your appreciation of God and his amazing love. And I pray that as we do, God will make your joy full. And if you haven't trusted in Christ already, I pray that you'll do that and that the peace of Christ will fill you this day as it never has before. So let's begin by reading of what God has spoken to us concerning the coming of his son in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. Once again, reading verses 1 through 21. If you would please stand for the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also 
went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. The angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the sayings that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, of the four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke is the one that gives us the greatest and most detailed account of the birth of Jesus. In fact, Mark and John actually don't say very much at all in their Gospels about the, about the birth of Jesus. They just jump straight into the years leading up to Jesus' ministry. Now, Matthew, for his part, gives us a very detailed account of Jesus' genealogy, uh, the drama of Joseph and God's instructions for him to take Mary as his wife, uh, the coming of the wise men, and King Herod's pursuit of the family, which caused him to flee for Egypt for a few years. But it's Luke, really, who gives us the most thorough account of the events of the first Christmas. And he does this, according to his introduction, because he wanted his readers to have certainty regarding all the things that God had accomplished in and through the sending of his son into the world. Luke is distinct from the other Gospels, uh, from the other gospel writers for the way he puts particular emphasis on Jesus' humanity. And so it's not surprising that he's the one who provides us with the greatest detail about Jesus' birth. When the Son of God took on flesh, he didn't just enter the world as a full-grown man. He came into it being born as a baby, as we all do. He embraced our weakness and he endured what we ourselves endure. He knew hunger and thirst. 
He knew what it was to be hot and to be cold. He had the full human experience, yet he was without sin. And that was necessary because he could not have otherwise fulfilled God's promise to provide an offspring who would overcome the serpent and rescue what had been lost in Adam. So, as we look at Luke's recording of the birth of Jesus, we're not looking at just a quaint story that belongs in the front of a Christmas card, or something that merely gives us an excuse to celebrate in the dead of winter. This is the record of how God fulfilled his promise by sending his own beloved son into the world to fulfill his redemption promise and to rescue his people from their sins. The details that Luke has recorded for us about the birth of Jesus connect the events of what happened that day in the city of Bethlehem to God's grand plan of redemption. It's here where the light of life first begins to shine in the darkness, as we had read in Isaiah 9. This is the moment when salvation, the sun of salvation, begins to dawn in the world. And it's here where we see the treasury of heaven opened and the world receiving the greatest gift ever. So the main idea, really, of our passage is this. At the right time, God sent his son, fulfilling his salvation promise and securing our hope. That is what we're reading as we look at Luke chapter 2. Now, in recounting the events of Jesus' birth, Luke includes a couple of important details that connect this in to the storyline of our salvation. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to hone in on three of those, which are related to our main idea, the understanding that what Luke has shown us, that at the right time, God sent his son and has fulfilled the salvation promise he has made and has secured our hope. So we're going to be looking at three details of the birth story. First, we're going to be looking at the edict of an emperor. Second, we'll be looking at the sign given to the shepherds. And third, we'll be looking at the anthem of the angels. So we're going to begin this morning by looking at this edict that went out from Caesar Augustus. Now, Edward Lorenz was a meteorologist and a mathematician in the 1970s who noticed that small, seemingly insignificant details could actually have a large impact later on. He discovered it as a meteorologist. He was working on some of his weather tables, and he, he noticed that if he rounded some of the, he, if he did different rounding of just very small measurements, he'd actually get completely different results. And so he, he began to, to formulate a theory um, called, which he called the butterfly effect, saying that the in, inconsequential details like the flapping of a butterfly's wing could actually be the determining factor of, the, of determining the exact path of a tornado a few weeks later. Now, it's an interesting idea. It's kind of captured, especially like science fiction likes to really use that. Um, it seems plausible enough when you consider that all the decisions we make really aren't entirely free or without influence uh, from things that we have no control over. Uh, we didn't choose who we were born to. We didn't choose where we would be born. We don't all have the same opportunities or options or skills or desires. From one point of view, it just looks like total mindless chaos, mere chance. And yet, the scriptures teach us that there is order. There is a plan. The world around us hasn't been left up to chance. It's not coincidence. It's the rule of our sovereign Lord, who is God, even of the smallest details. 
And that reality shows up here in the events of Jesus' birth. God is the one who raises up nations and puts down nations. He is the one who grants authority and who takes it away. Though the die is cast into the lap, it's every decision, Proverbs 16.33 says, is from the Lord. So as we look at the birth story, it's particularly interesting to me that Luke begins his account not in Bethlehem, not in Judea, not even in Israel, but actually in Rome, in the halls of Caesar Augustus, who issued a decree that all the world should be registered. Now, this is sort of a census, something the Romans used, uh, used to do for tax purposes. They needed to know who was out there so they could keep track and make sure that they were, they were paying their taxes. <clears throat> this is how the Romans kept their empire running. And this is something that was affecting not just Judea, not just Israel, but the whole world. This is, this is kind of global. Um, and so we see that as this is going out, this is actually the occasion which is bringing things to bear. Now, there were other registrations that happened. Luke specifically tells us that this was the first registration that took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Although uh, you may notice in your, in, your, in your Bible that the Greek can also be translated as this is before he was the governor of Syria, which is a very plausible explanation. Either way, this is probably sometime around 5 to 6 B.C. Now there's a reason Luke tells about this decree in particular. And the first reason we see is that it's clear Luke wants us to see the birth of Jesus for the historical event that it is. The birth of Jesus is not Christmas myth. It's something that really happened. It has all the historical markers that we could ask for. We're able to trace these details down. We can confirm them from history. Luke had done the work. He had consulted the eyewitnesses, traced out the documents, and recorded these details down to present us with an orderly account of the things that God had accomplished so that we can have certainty concerning these things. Luke wrote these details down because faith is based on fact on reality, not wishful thinking. And we see that here starting especially with the birth story. Now the second reason that Luke tells us about this decree is because in doing so, he's actually provided us with an explanation of how Mary and Joseph ended up in Bethlehem in the first place. At the time when this edict went out, Mary and Joseph didn't live in Bethlehem. They actually lived in Nazareth, which is in Galilee. And that's significant because these towns are not close to each other. Now, if modern day, in a car, wouldn't seem quite nearly as far. But you have to remember, people are walking everywhere. So this is significant. This is a di great distance. The key feature we see explaining why they were, where they were, at the time of Jesus' birth is this edict. Now, Joseph, uh, you may already know, is, and as we read in the text, is a descendant of David. Bethlehem which is called the city of David, was his ancestral home. So as people across the Roman Empire were traveling to their hometowns to be registered, Luke tells us that Joseph also went up from his home in the north to Bethlehem in the south with Mary, his betrothed, to be registered there with her. 
Now, the road to Bethlehem was not an easy one. You'll notice Luke says he went up. The reason is not because he's walking south, but because he's walking uphill. Bethlehem, Judea was higher and than, than Galilee was, and so this would have been uphill in dangerous terrain, and it's not something that you would just do on a whim, especially with an expectant mother. So I think it's safe for us to say, looking at the details of this, if it weren't for this edict, Joseph and Mary probably would have never traveled to Bethlehem. Jesus would have very likely have been born in Nazareth. And yet we see that this key detail happened. It happened for a reason. This decision began in the courtroom of an emperor over a thousand miles away. And that is what led to Mary and Joseph being in Bethlehem at the exact time when Jesus was to be born. Now this seems like an inconsequential accident. You may be thinking, why on earth is he making a big deal about this? This is a, a detail of the story that we all know, but we don't always necessarily think about why it matters so much. This is, in fact, a, this is a key, this key, this decision to have this edict actually plays a key role in the way that God fulfilled what he had said concerning this offspring. And that leads me to the third reason that I think God inspired Luke to include this detail, which is this. Luke shows us the faithfulness of God to keep his promises in ways that only he can do. Now, last week when we were in Isaiah 9, you may remember that God said light was going to dawn on Israel through the coming of a child. Specifically, he said this light was going to shine in where? Galilee. Now, we talked about how that promise was fulfilled. Jesus' hometown was Nazareth in Galilee. But God had also said something else about this Messiah through another prophet named Micah. And as Brad read from us, for us earlier, we see that in Micah 5, verse 2, God had said, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be numbered among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in, in, ruler in Israel, whose coming forth <clears throat> is from of old, from ancient days. So, was the Christ, the promised son, supposed to come from Galilee or Nazareth? Well, the answer is both. And Luke shows us how that's possible. Jesus may have grown up in Nazareth. He may have started his ministry there in Galilee. But he was rightfully David's heir. And he was born in David's city, Bethlehem. The one, the very city from which God had said would come the rightful ruler of his people. The one whose coming forth was from of old. The details of Jesus' birth aren't inconsequential to God's promises. They identify him as the son of David, who is also the child who was given, the son who was born, bringing light and life to those who were lost in a land of darkness. You see, this is an amazing detail. Two things that would otherwise seem contradictory until you put Jesus in as the king and you realize it's perfect. You can't make this stuff up. What looks to be like a contradiction between two prophets is in fact perfectly fulfilled by God in Christ in a way that clearly and uniquely identifies him as the one that God had spoken about, even in the Garden of Eden. 
what I want you really to see from this is that there are no accidents in the plan of God. The decision of a tyrannical ruler in a foreign land was the means which God used to fulfill what he had spoken through the prophets hundreds of years before. The conditions were perfect. God had orchestrated each one of those details. God was working in history, appointing and moving the history of the world to culminate in the fulfillment of his perfect plan. What seems like from the outside to be nothing more than just a major inconvenience of an oppressive force was in fact the path that God laid to make good on his word. The birth of Jesus in Jerusalem wasn't a happy little accident. It was the fulfillment of a promise from of old in a way that only God could do, showcasing the simple reality that God rules and reigns over the comings and the goings of the world. There are no accidents with God. He cannot be escaped. His plans cannot be thwarted. And Luke's account of Jesus' birth, especially this little detail, showcases really what Paul captures in Galatians 4.4 when he writes, But... When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, we should always be careful about reading significance into the circumstances of our lives. We, we don't know the mind of God. We don't know the purpose God has for each and every detail in our lives or what he has planned for us. But at the same time, when, when we look, when I look at the details of the Christmas story, and I think about everything that had to take place to bring the world to this point, when the fullness of time came, I'm just left in awe of our amazing God and his faithfulness to keep his promises and to accomplish his purposes. And then I'm further convinced to trust him that he will, in fact, accomplish everything he set out to do including delivering us into the kingdom of his beloved son. That brings us to our second detail that we want to look at in Luke's account of the birth story, which is the shepherd's son. Now, although Joseph was the son, he was a son of David, he and his little family were not received in a royal way when they arrived in Bethlehem. The city was crowded with others who had traveled there to register as well. The local inn, we're told, did not have room to host them. So instead, Mary and Joseph were given a place to stay among the animals where the time came for Mary to give birth. Now Luke doesn't go into any details about the birth itself. He just simply tells us Jesus was born. It's, it's one of those things you go, oh, I wish I knew more. But Luke just says, oh, the time came. She, he was born, and they wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, which is a food trough for animals to eat out of. This is a picture that we've sort of romanticized over time, but man, I have seen babies born, and I will tell you, it is not a peaceful thing to watch. Uh, watching a birth is one of the most intense things you will ever witness. Some of you have experienced. There's blood, there's sweat, there's tears. It's Painful, And as much as I like to sing the song Silent Night as the next person, I can assure you that that night in Bethlehem was anything but quiet. In all this, there is a point that Luke makes to us from this about the lowliness of Jesus' birth. 
let me tell you, these are not the sort of conditions that I would have found acceptable for either of our kids, let alone the Son of God. I think Mary and Joseph did the very best they could with what they had. This, this is what they had, and yet, as we look at the details Luke's captured for us, what a picture of the humility of Jesus. John Calvin observes that we see what sort of beginning the life of the Son of God had and in what cradle he was placed. Such was his condition at his birth because he had taken upon him our flesh for this purpose that he might empty himself on our account. When he was thrown into a stable and placed in a manger and a lodging refused him among men, it was that heaven might be open to us not as a temporary lodging, but as our eternal country and inheritance, and that angels might receive us into their abode. What Calvin has captured there, and what Luke, what he's commented on that Luke has really captured for us, is this, that the Son of God embraced lowliness for us. And because he did, we have eternal life and a hope of glory with him that will not disappoint. We see that in the condition of Jesus' birth, but we also see that in the way that his birth was announced to a group of shepherds who were outside the city, keeping their watch over their flocks at night. While they were there, Luke tells us that an angel of the Lord appeared to them and that the glory of the Lord shone around them. So think about, as we were making our way through Deuteronomy, the glory of the Lord on the mountain, this is what they're seeing. And when they saw the angel, they were filled with great fear. And rightly so. When a sinner is exposed to the glory of God, fear is the right reaction. But then the angel spoke to them and said, Fear not! I have brought you good news of great joy, not just for you, shepherds, but for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling claws and lying in a manger. Now, there are two things I want to point out to you here. First, the people who the and I want to look at who the people who the angel appeared to, and then at the message that he gave them. So, first of all, of all the people that the angel could have gone and made this announcement to, why shepherds? I mean, honestly, shepherding is the, again, you know, think about all the nativity pageants you've seen. We love to romanticize the shepherds. Shepherding is dirty work. These men were men of the field. They did a dirty, dangerous job. They smelled. They were looked down upon. They were the lowly of society. These are the last people we'd expect to hear the news of Jesus' birth first. And yet, that's precisely it, isn't it? Jesus came in a lowly state, and he came to the lowly. The angel's announcement to the shepherds is fitting. He could have gone to anyone. He could have gone to the Pharisees in Bethlehem. He could have gone to the, to the local, local rabbi. But he didn't. He went to these shepherds in the same way that Jesus, in his own ministry, went to the sick, the lost, the tax collector, the sinner, not to join them in their sin, but to deliver them from it. 
and to raise them up with him. Jesus came to be a king who would shepherd his people. And so it's fitting, I think, that the angel went and made this announcement to the shepherds themselves. In fact, Micah chapter 5, verse 4 says this about Jesus. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Now before David was king of Israel, David was a shepherd. He shepherded his flocks, I expect, in the same hills that these shepherds would have tended their flocks in. And now here we have the offspring of David, a new and better king, Jesus Christ, who called himself the good shepherd because he came to give his life for his flock, being announced to them. When the angel came and spoke to these shepherds, he told them not to fear because he had good news. He had good news that the promised shepherd of Micah 5 had arrived. He had been born. And the angel told them that this baby had been born in the place that God said he would, that he was, in fact, the long-expected Savior, Christ the Lord. That little baby was not just another son born in the line of David. He was the son born to save the lost, born to shepherd his people, born to save them from their sins. Now, the humility of Jesus shows up all over the Gospels. But it is particularly clear at Jesus' birth. The angel gave the shepherds a sign so that they could know that what they had said, what they had had said to them wasn't a dream, it wasn't a hallucination, it was reality. He told them to go to the city and told them that they would find there a child wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And when they went to investigate, we find that that's exactly what they found there. In the most unlikely of places, they found the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Jesus is a king who remembers the lowly. He is a king who is kind to the brokenhearted, who bears with the heavy laden. In fact, he calls us to cast our burdens on him. And he calls us to take his yoke upon ourselves and tells us that he is gentle and lowly. Jesus calls us to cease from our strivings and to fall, that, that fall so short of God's holiness. And instead, to re- he calls us to receive the salvation we need at his own expense. That's the king we serve. That's the king who came to a city that would not receive him and embraced the way of humility and has been exalted now as a victorious Lord. If we have anything to remember at Christmas, let us remember the lowliness and the humility of Christ. Let us remember the way that Christ loved us and let us love one another accordingly. And that brings us to the third detail I want to hone in on, which is the anthem of the angels. Now, the birth of Jesus, lowly and unremarkable as it was in the eyes of the world, did receive a royal acclaim. He received adoration, in fact, higher than the courts of Caesar Augustus. After the angel proclaimed the birth of Jesus to these shepherds, Luke tells us, 
that at once there was with that angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. While most of the people in Bethlehem slept through the night without much of a thought or a care about what had happened in their city, heaven erupted with praise as Jesus was born. The song of the angels stands out for two reasons. One, they praised God for what he had done. They exalted the Lord. They glorified God for this. Which is strange to think about the way that Jesus embraced humility. He was exalted because he embraced humility. Second, it stands out because as the angels sang, they proclaimed peace on earth. Not not just peace between people, but peace peace between earth and heaven. If the message of the angel hadn't been enough, I think that this song probably did it for the shepherds. The song of the angels we see took root in their hearts. And Luke tells us that after the angels left, the shepherds looked at each other and said, let's go look and let's go to Bethlehem to see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And so they went and they found things to be exactly as the angel had told them. Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Now, I have to wonder what it must have been like for Mary and Joseph to, to listen to these men they had never met, just enter, this, enter the place that they're at, and explode with joy, telling them what had happened and what the angel had said to them. They already knew that God was going to do something special with this child. After all, each of them had been visited by an angel as well. So I can't imagine that this took them too much by surprise, uh, that, they were, that they were completely confounded by what the shepherds had said to them. In fact, they had been told that this child would be the one who would save his people from their sins. But at the same time, you know, when you have a little baby, you kind of want privacy. And you've got these smelly shepherds busting down the door delighted to find this, telling everybody what has been seen. This is the one who is going to bring peace. Mary, Luke tells us, treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. He doesn't say anything about Joseph, but from the way that Matthew describes Joseph, I think he probably did the same. Everything was going to be different from here on out because the Savior had arrived. After the, angel, after the shepherds had come and visited with Mary and Joseph and the baby, Luke says that they returned to their flocks, but they didn't just go straight to their flocks. No, they glorified God and they praised God for all they had heard from the angel, but not just that, for what they had seen. The anthem of the angels, it seems, took over their own hearts, and they praised God too. When it comes to Christmas, we have a lot to celebrate. But there's nothing better than this. The Savior has come. The promised deliverer has come. He did not come in a way that demanded the attention of the town or even the owner of the inn. He was born into oppression. He took his place with his people, and even they did not accept him. But that did not stop God from accomplishing his purpose of redemption. No, it was on account of that humility and through the emptying of the Son that God has exalted him and saved us. Now we're told in verse 21 that at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, they called the baby Jesus. 
That is an important detail because that was the name which we are told was given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now the name Jesus is actually, we, it's a, we've anglicized it a bit. It's more Yeshua and it is, that's actually Joshua's name. And it means something. His name means Yahweh saves. God saves. The angel who told that name to Joseph said that he was to be called that because he would do just that. It wasn't just a baby. It was God in the manger. That is why the angels appeared in peace, bringing good news to lowly shepherds. And that is why you and I can rejoice this morning in this message. We've received the greatest gift ever. We have received the Messiah. The King has come. And in His coming, we have life and we have light. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we've come to a familiar passage. I don't know how many times I have heard this passage quoted. I don't know how many times I've heard it read. I don't know how many times I have heard it, seen it, represented in plays and on TV, and shows, and stories. And yet, Father, there's something refreshing about getting to plunge back into the details of this text this morning, especially as we celebrate Christmas. Father, what an appropriate thing to do to be with the body of Christ even as we celebrate the arrival of Christ in the manger. Lord, you did something that confounded the imaginations of the greatest writers. You've done something that's changed the history of the world. And yet, considering everything we see in your word about how your rule and your reign works, it's still amazing to consider that you are the God of the details. You deliver on all of your promises. Even when we look at things and we go, there's no way. You bring it about. And we see that in the birth of Jesus. More than that, Father, we see that how you have done, you have confounded our imaginations again. And that you have chosen to exalt Jesus by sending him to become a man, to, to make him lowly, and yet to exalt him because of his humility. So, Father, this morning, my prayer is that you would instill in each of us an awe for Jesus, an awe for you, and that we, too, would sing the song of the angels, and that we would praise you and glorify you for what you have done. We thank you, Lord, and we ask that our hearts would be made full of the peace and the joy of Christ this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.